0: Give them a tool to use. I want you to be opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. I've already kind of told you what this would be about. And uh, I had us hold hands during the prayer time for this reason. Whoever's hand you held, this that might have been the only human care or concern or touch they have felt all week or will feel all this coming week. Have you ever thought about that? You might be the only Jesus anybody ever sees, the only Bible that some people may ever read. Uh, Hopefully once they see Jesus and read him in your life, they'll want him. God will move in their life. They'll come to know Christ and uh, then they can become that for someone else. But within the body, we are supposed to be ministering to ourselves. Y'all understand that, right? Church boils down to two things, just to make it as simple as possible. We go from that basic two things and we get further and further out, so it sounds more and more complicated, but it's really not. It all comes down to two things. We use these big words for them, evangelism and edification, but here's what that means. Evangelism means that I go out as a witness to tell people about who Jesus is, what he did for them, and what they can have in a relationship with Christ if they respond to that positively and become a follower of Jesus Christ become our brother and sister then the second word comes into effect edification which means to build up together to make stronger together in other words it's a collaborative effort that we all grow up grow up how the Bible says grow up into Christ grow up to look like Christ now there's another way to look at this, but it involves five things, but four of them fit under edification. So one of them is evangelism, okay? I'm giving you some longer words. You've probably heard these words, but I'm just defining them for you. And that is sharing Christ. So we, we do that. But the other ones are worship, that we ought to worship God and Him alone, but we have to learn how to do that. We have to we have to have that love relationship with Him to do that. We have to minister to not only one another, but to other people around us to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we have worship but we also have uh, a ministry outside of the church even and especially. Then we have evangelism which we have already covered and from that we have fellowship or edification or fellowship because fellowship we, we use this term loosely in the Baptist Church and if you're not a Baptist forgive me for saying that, but that's who we are so, I can only talk about us. And and we use that term real loosely. Uh, so if we get together and have supper together, we go, man, that was some good fellowship. Or if we get together and talk about the, the, you know, whatever, ball games or whatever your interest is, and then we leave because we had a good time, we say, man, that was good fellowship. And and fellowship can, can and does involve just getting together with a brother or sister and just enjoying each other's company. But technically, fellowship ought to be Sometimes like sandpaper, hopefully it doesn't hurt that bad, but sandpaper rubbing rough edges off of each other, helping one another look more like Christ. And that means that that we ought to be asking each other tough questions like, what did God teach you in your quiet time this morning? You know, or... Hey, I've been noticed. you looking a little down. What's going on? Can I pray with you? Not in a judgmental way, but in a way of helping. The Bible says in Galatians, if you see a brother stumble, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with meekness, lest you too fall like he did. Because guess what? I started to come in here and quote the theme song from Cheers. I don't know if you all remember. That was 40 years ago. I mean, they had a line 40 years ago, as the verses talk about all the problems this, guy, this person's life says, and your husband wants to be a girl. Well, 40 years later, that's celebrated, right? And so it's kind of a cute psalm. It says everybody wants to go someplace where everybody knows their name. God built us to have interaction and fellowship with some people just like us that are struggling. But here's the difference in, in Christians is... We know the one who knows the answer. I had a very, you know, a family practitioner doctor as a kid. And I, I've been a diabetic since I was seven, in case you don't know that about me. And, uh, and, and I went to go off to school. And I said, hey, doc, you know, I'm moving up here to Columbia. And, and uh, I need, you know, a doctor or something. He said, I got the name of the man. And he said, he, he, here's his name. Here's where he is. He said, this man is like me. He doesn't know everything, but what he doesn't know, he knows who does. I always appreciated that in a doctor, you know, who knew his limitations. Well, guess what? With God, there is no limitation, right? So I don't know everything, but I know somebody who does know everything, right? And so we get together and we help as God has helped me. I help you as God's helped you. You help me. That's fellowship. The last one, uh, 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 by the way... Um, I got to do it in my head to, to get there. Vans uh, fellowship, and uh, going in, into all the world uh, uh, to to be a witness. I'm, I'm I'm missing something. It'll come later. That's not important right now. So this is one in fellowship, and fellowship's important. And and listen, there we live in a community that is a more settled community than than others. It may be less settled than uh, uh, more settled than some, and less settled than others. But, but my wife and I have lived a life where for most of our married life together, we have lived far away from family. All right, Where, where uh, I've lived, um, I guess, this is about the furthest we've ever lived from them, but with the highway system the way it is, we can still get there about the same amount of time. But we're six hours, uh, if my parents were still living from where they live now, and, uh, and about eight or nine hours from where her mom lives at, by car. But at one time, we lived uh, about that same distance when our son was born, Ian. And Ian is our third child. Again, you might not know much about me. And oh, by the way, our fifth grandchild was born this week. We're so excited. Uh, amen. Yeah, you can clap for that. Got to make the preacher happy. Clap for his grandbaby. Um, anyway, no, I appreciate that. Uh, but but, Janice had three Pregnancies, each one had its own set of uh, difficulties that, that could have been life-threatening to her and the baby. And so we're pretty far along in the pregnancy with Ian, and doctor's doing the ultrasound, and he asked a weird question. He said, so uh, do y'all want children after this one? And we said, maybe. What are you saying? Because you could tell he wasn't just asking a general question. And so he, that's when I understood what placenta previa is. It killed my grandmother, uh, my dad's mother um giving birth to her 12th child and if you don't know if you're a dumb guy like me it means the placenta is between the baby and where he wants to get out and so when he goes to be born the placenta bursts in a way that the mother and the child bleed to death because they're still hooked by the umbilical cord and it's going to it's going to be ugly and so the doctor said well you, here's what's going to happen you're going to start spotting at home you call me. You call the whatever. Get down to the hospital, and we'll do a C-section. Clean, neat. Everything's good, right? So we're at home, living in a parsonage at that time, and uh, we were watching some silly show. I don't even know what remember what it was, but I do know it was ten o'clock at night. And she handed me her empty plate with the Oreo cookie crumbs on it and her glass of milk that was drained. And I walked into the kitchen because it's bedtime. It's about ten o'clock. And I set them down, and I hear. The words, oh my, I'm bleeding. So she did not spot, she abrupted, which means it popped. And when I came back out, I don't want to be too graphic, but let's just say blood was pouring out and it was everywhere. So I said, what do I do? I am the most calm person in a crisis except that time. Because <laughs> that was her. And I didn't know what she said, call the doc. I said, what's his number? She had to tell me his phone number. It was real easy, 539-3939. Nine, nine, nine. I know it now, but I didn't know it then. <laughs> And then the phone's still attached to the wall, and I'm calling, and uh, he said, get her to the hospital. I said, shouldn't I call an ambulance? He said, you don't have time. Savannah was five. Cameron was three. They're asleep in bed. She's holding towels to try to stem the bleeding. I put her in the car, grab the girls, throw them in the car seat. We get in the car, and I take off for the hospital. The humorous part is if you, if you uh teaching your children right from wrong at about five, they get real acutely aware of that. So from my house to the hospital, it was about 10 to 12 minutes. It was, it was 25 mile an hour speed limit downtown and 35 on either side of the town. And we lived two miles that way from town and the hospital's two miles in. So I was doing 55 or 60 through town. And the five-year-old said, Daddy, are you speeding? I said, yes, I am. Why don't you pray we see a policeman? Because I want lights and sirens, right? I got flashers going, bright lights. And so little sweet thing bows her head. Dear Jesus, let Daddy see a policeman. She said, amen. And a cop pulled out in front of me and went that way. And I went, there he is. I live in the rearview mirror. He just kept going like I would not do anything. It's it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm doing 60 and a 25 lights and blinkers. Is one of you policemen explained that to me later. I guess he figured, ah, what's the use? But then I was hitting 70 in place. So anyway, we got there. They pulled her out. 10 o'clock, she said those words, 1022, our son was born. Couldn't breathe. They had to give him a shot, put him on intubation. Um, and, you know, today he's this tall and this big and doing really well. And we thank God for all of that. And she survived too. But here's why I tell you that story. We are six hours from the closest relative. A pastor friend and his wife came to the house and started trying to clean up that blood. Now, they did the best they could. They had to rip that carpet out, obviously. Another lady from the church showed up at the hospital and said, I got the girls and took them on. We needed some help. And I always hesitate to ever talk about my position and life as a pastor Um, i'll use my kids as a sermon illustration a heartbeat but other than that but who pastors the pastor that's a great question who pastors pastor bobby who goes when any of you have a need he'll drop everything to be there for you who does that for him as brother andy's raising his children brother todd raising his five boys who encourages them and says man you're doing a good job and How can we ever help, or what can I do, or just do something? We need encouragement. Paul was this pastor, minister, needed encouragement. We understand you need encouragement. We're not different or special. We don't need more than you, but we do need something. We're not supermen. We're just men. Called to a special place, you understand? But see, just turn to your right or left. Those people need you. Those people need your help. There's nobody in here that doesn't have a need that is real and painful to them. In some way, in some area. It might be lessened right now. But life is a life because we're fallen uh, men that, that is full of sorrow and pain, is it not? And so we all need some kind of help. And, and so let me just ask you some questions. Why does God want, warn us against isolation? Proverbs 18.1 says, uh, says this. You, you, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to try to be turned to several scriptures. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The man who seeks to be isolated. Listen, by nature, I am a shy introvert. Just, I'm a situational extrovert. That means when I'm around you, I spend the energy to be nice. Because I like it when it's quiet. This past winter... When Stephen and Savannah were with us, and Stephen just wanted to go squirrel hunting, and we got to go up on this mountain, it it was still ice on the trees up on the mountain. We were there for eight hours that day. It was 33 degrees, so the ice is melting, dripping on our head. It was kind of rainy, foggy. We saw not a squirrel all day, and we didn't talk to. We were separated around that mountain, didn't even see each other all day. Next morning, I wake up, and I'm like, "Hey, baby, good morning. How you doing?" She said, "What are you doing up? Why are you so cheerful?" I said, I'm just up, I don't know. And she said, you're not usually like this in the morning. And that was an understatement. And I thought a minute, I said, oh, I know. I spent eight hours yesterday in freezing, cold, water dripping on my head as the ice melted. And I didn't speak to an, another individual all day. So I'm happy today. <laughs> that's, my, that's who I am in here. But guess what? When I isolate myself, I don't want anybody to see what I'm really going to do. That's what the Bible's warning us about in eighteen one. We separate ourselves from, from, uh, from others. We are seeking out our own desire. We break out against sound judgment. Leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered. Don't, don't talk to me about that. Why? Because we're seeking out something that might shame us. That might, you know, and then I'm not saying 100% of the time. Sometimes everybody needs a little alone time. I understand that. But, but, but many times we want to separate because there's something wrong that we don't want you to see. And that's what 18.1 is warning us about. Why is it dangerous? Is because it makes us vulnerable. This morning, if you were in Sunday school, you studied in the book of Ecclesiastes. I would invite you to turn to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes if, if you want to. And listen, it makes us vulnerable. Here's what it says in verses 11 and 12. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, if you got a companion, he keeps you encouraged, he keeps you going, he lifts you up, he helps you to move, and you become very, 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 very vulnerable when you isolate yourself. Secondly, why did God make us to need each other? To understand the true nature of God. Look at verse 9 of of 4 of Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one because... They have a good reward for their toil. You know, anything we do good as a Christian, Paul said, in me that is in my flesh, it dwells no good thing. Any good, truly good thing that I can ever accomplish, I did not do that. God did that through this vessel. Let me go ahead and explain it the way I always explain it, and so you may have heard this, but I'm standing right in front of a black speaker here, and I've got a mic attached to my head and a radio signal back there, and then it comes back down here and it comes out there and it comes out those and all that. Those speakers in this mic aren't saying a word. They're just hanging out. But when I talk, you know what I'm thinking because I'm saying it through them. Right? That's the kind of vessel. We are an active. We're not as dead as this stuff. But we are dead to ourselves. We've offered our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, as a reasonable service. And he takes that dead body and he fills it with his life and stands us up and sends us into the world to testify of his grace and his words to a world that needs to hear it. You get that? And so God is our companion. Paul says at the end of Timothy, man, get here quick. He even said, bring John Mark with you when you come, because this one deserted me, and that one deserted me, and when I stood to give up, everybody ran. I need you, man. Get here quick as you can. This mighty man of God, he needed people, and would we be any less than needing people? And so we got to understand that we all need God as our companion, and then we help encourage one another. So why, what does a Christian look like without fellowship? He looks like a victim. Look at Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 4.10, it says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. I don't know if you know this about, about predators and prey, but a predator, a true predator, seeks out the one that is weak, sick, or alone. God gave zebra stripes so when they ran in a pack, you couldn't pick one out from the pack. That's their camouflage. They don't, they don't have camouflage into nature, they have camouflage into each other. If they don't run as a herd, one of them is going to get isolated. I know this in the military, uh, one of the rules in the military is that when you're in a battle, try not to look important, because that's who they want to kill is the guy that looks important. I, I had a picture, of a friend of mine who was a, uh, a special warrior, and he was in Iraq, and he ran into another church member over there and him and another guy and they, had, they took this picture together and the other two guys were like mechanics on tanks and things like that and, and so he, he sent the picture back via email and I showed it to Janice I said, what do you notice about that picture? And she said, well, it's Jeff and, and uh, I forgot the guy's name, Joe Smith or Stewart was his last name actually and, uh, and, and, and some other guy and I said, yeah, but look closer, what do you notice? Well, they're... In the desert, they're all in uniform. Yeah, what else do you notice? The mechanic guys had their military insignia and everything on them. That special warrior guy, it was green, but that was it. (laughs) You didn't know his rank. You didn't know his job. You didn't know anything because he's going out where they're going to shoot at him. And he didn't want to look important. So a predator is always looking for somebody weak, sick, or alone. Now, who is our enemy? Oh, the devil, like a roaring lion is seeking you out to devour you. And when you isolate yourself, I don't need church. I can worship God on the golf course. Well, that may be true, but that ain't why you went to the golf course. You went to the golf course. If you were out there worshiping God on the golf course, truly worshiping God on the golf course, they would call someone to come pick you up and take you to the hospital. Because on the golf course, you play golf. Now, I'm not saying Christian can't worship, but I'm being a little bit ludicrous because you're being ludicrous telling me that. Right? Right? I, 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 Listen, I'm sitting on a mountain in freezing rain, and I am communing with God. I love that. I am in the elements that God made, and it's wonderful to me. It's, it's joyous to me. But that can't be my only church. That's just a, a private thing God did for me that day so, to recharge my battery. You follow me? But listen, when I get with with you, there, they, some of y'all I meet with uh, on a regular basis, some, some I see from nine to time, that gets me charged up when we start talking about the things of God together and I get strength from that and I don't feel isolated and when I'm in trouble I know there's somebody can pray for me and I can call on because without fellowship you look like a victim and what does the church look like without fellowship an organization not an organism without fellowship we're just an organization and we've got ranking officers and jobs to do and all of that but it's just an organization that has no life in it whatsoever I, my body has organization. It's called the skeletal system. But bones without meat and blood and oxygen have no strength, right? And by the way, blood and bones and oxygen without a skeleton doesn't look so good, does it? Have you ever had boneless chicken? Ever seen one of those dudes when it's alive? You know, <laughs> just kidding. Just try and get a picture stuck in your head so you understand what I'm talking about. And so the body of Christ has structure, but it also should have life. Okay? You've got to understand that. The Bible even talks about that in our personal life. That we have the structure, our belief, our faith is structured. But if all we have is the structure of our beliefs, that's bones without life. The bones need breath. The bones need life in them. And so the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we have a light on the path and a presence in the dark, as I prayed earlier. You follow me? That's in Jude. It says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's Jude, verse 24, I believe. But you can look, look it up. All right? So here's Paul. And we didn't read the passage. Um, and, and I really should. So I, I, we usually just pop up, if you will, just for a second. Just because I I always have you stand, and I don't want to make too big of an exception out of it. Begin in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue, Crispus I just want to point out the three areas that Paul found encouragement. He found fellowship here. First, he found fellowship with co-workers. First of all, he meets two new people. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, these guys, uh, obviously they had a quick, immediate bond. Probably Aquila and Priscilla have been Christians longer than Paul had even. But they're saved. They're tent makers. Paul's a tent maker. So they get together and he just starts working with them. And on Saturdays, he goes down to the synagogue and he debates with the Jewish people. And, uh, and, and so this is going on. So he got encouragement from daily work with them. And these people became great partners with Paul. In fact, in a little bit, we will meet a guy named Apollos who didn't have the full truth. And, and Paul takes that guy and says, here, Aquila and Priscilla can help you out. That's how good they were. Paul trusted them to teach people all the doctrine and the theology that that he taught as well. The other two were Silas and Timothy, whom he had had to leave behind. Uh, Just the way this is written and things we see in other places, these guys split with other other places first, and then they come back and they meet Paul in Corinth. And so Paul gets some encouragement from, from those people. But secondly, he got encouragement from new converts. All right, I tell you, I get excited when somebody gets saved. I don't know about you, but it excites me. And we've always say, well, you know, the Bible says that, that um, the angels of God rejoice. And that so the angels are rejoicing when somebody gets saved. Now, the Bible says the angels are mystified by it. And they wish they could look into this, but they can't. Because they cannot be saved. They either are sealed righteously. And a third, when they rebelled, they were sealed for destruction forever. And they are held in reserve until... In the last day, Jesus throws all those evil angels, the demons we would call them, into hell. And the other angels, we believe that he sealed them so they could never rebel. They are they are robotic, obedient servants. Now they're not robotic in the sense they don't have emotion or feeling or intelligence because he did make them that way. But they don't get a, they don't get to respond if they if they decide to leave God. God says, "Bye, I see ya. You're done." But yet, when man did that, God came. In flesh and saved us. So that passage, if you read it carefully, says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. And if they're the angels of God, they're standing in whose presence? God's. And the joy that's in the angels of God's presence is that God is having the joy. Amen. I'm telling you, when somebody gets saved, God gets excited. And some people don't want to get excited in church. But God gets excited any time somebody comes to know him. And Paul, man, he is seeing people get saved and he's excited. He loves his people. He's in the synagogue. And he does see some of them come to know Christ. The leader of the synagogue, the big guy in the synagogue, trusts that Jesus is the Messiah. And he and his whole household get saved, which is a great and amazing thing. And so Paul is with them, but he has to wind up shaking the dust off his feet from them because they're going to get violent again. They're getting upset. So he says, fine, I won't even talk to you anymore. But he also has this guy, Titius Justice. He Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, getting saved. And then it says a whole bunch of the Corinthians got saved. People are getting saved in Corinth. Now, Corinth's got its own problems, and they're a unique church in the Bible, and they're an interesting study. But people are being changed. Their lives are being transformed. And Paul is encouraged in that work so much he spends a year and a half there after this passage still teaching and and helping out these people. And and Titus and, uh, I mean, Timothy and, and Silas do the same thing. But the third area that Paul got encouragement is fellowship with God himself. Listen, the first responsibility as an individual believer that I have is my relationship with God. You with me? The second one I have is to my family. Whether as a child, a parent, but the, the main relationship is a husband and wife, right? And then things flow out from that. So you may be a child or unmarried and all that. You still have family and you have responsibility. And the way we do that changes through our life. But those relationships remain. And then our third relationship in life is with brothers and sisters in Christ. You follow me? So Paul, he kept this one first. He kept that relationship with God right so that he could have all other relationships in order. Because unless you're right with God, you're not right with anything. Right? Nothing's settled till it's settled right. Nothing's settled right till it's settled with God. So our first priority, and as a pastor, you say, you know, your first priority is the church. No, my first priority is my relationship with God. Oh, second priority is the church. No, my second priority is with my wife and my children. My third priority is this. Now, it's high. I mean, I'm not laying off. But that ought to be true for all of us. And I've had church people get mad because I wouldn't you know, do what they thought was important because I had something to do with my child that was much more important in eternity than you know, a meeting to decide what color to paint the wall. I don't care. Just paint it. What difference does it make? It doesn't in the grand scheme of things. In a hundred years, nobody will remember. And right now, there's a a billion Chinese people that don't care. So let's do things that have eternal value, right? So God comes to Paul because Paul is keeping this relationship with God open. And God gives him four encouragements. First of all, he gives him a command to keep speaking. I don't know if any of you have ever been depressed. Maybe your person's never been depressed. Depression is in my family. I've seen it before. I've been under it before. Sometimes it's just a spiritual thing, and you got to pray it off. And sometimes it's it's just a problem, and you got to deal with it. Maybe a physical thing even. But I know this about one of the ways to move out of depression is to move out, (laughs) not to sit still. Elijah, man, he he confronts the prophets of Baal on a mountain, and then he runs from one woman. He sees 480 prophets of a false god put to death, and then one woman says something, and he runs. He goes into depression. He's hiding in a cave, and he's depressed. And you know what God does? God reveals himself to him, and then he says, Go down to that city and anoint that guy to be a prophet, and go over here, and there's a widow who needs you to pray for her and help her get some food. And He makes, gets Elijah out moving again and doing things. And, and God comes to Paul in the midst of, of, of man, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm tired of, I mean, Paul has been through, a, a, if, I, if I were to exercise everything Paul's went through, he's run from city to city to city because they're trying to kill him and everyone he goes to. And he's got to be where he gets here and he's like, man, I don't know how long I can keep this up. And God says, keep preaching. Don't quit doing it. I got you. He says, don't be afraid. He exhorts him. He encourages him. He commands him. But then he exhorts him. He says, don't be afraid. Same thing he told Joshua. Be of good cheer. Be of courage. Obey me. Do what I called you to do. And be of courage. So that's what he has to tell Paul in this passage. He says, hey, Paul, keep on talking. Keep on preaching. Keep on giving them the truth. And so Paul does that. And he says, don't be afraid. And then he says... Nobody's going to harm you. Why? Because he says, "I'm with you. I am with you. He t- uh, don't be afraid. Go on and speaking. And don't be silent. For I am with you, and nobody's going to hurt you. It may look like they're going to, but I got it. Now, wouldn't it be neat to go into a battle knowing that they're going to shoot at you a gazillion ways from Sunday, and none of them's going to hit you?" That's what God just told Paul, and battle's going to rage all around you, it's going to get ugly, it's going to scare you, but don't worry, I got it. You won't get hurt. That's a pretty awesome promise there God gave Paul. And then he said one more thing, I got people you don't know about yet. There are people that aren't even saved yet, God already said, no, that one's mine. He's coming a little later, but I got him. Don't worry, I got people here for you. I, I tell you that story about us at the beginning, and you probably have some similar story where you were in a desperate need, and friends or people came around you, family, and they helped you. We've been helped by so many people in our life. I could never repay all the people that that have done good to me, and I pray that I've done good to, for others. But, but, but I I know this that I don't remember asking those people to come help us. I think we called the one person and said, "Hey, we've had to go to the hospital and." The one that went and picked up our daughters. Actually, my daughters were with me at the hospital. They came to the hospital and got them and took them home. Friends of ours. But, but we didn't ask them to clean up that mess at the house. They just did it. You, you ever had somebody just step in? You didn't see them coming. You didn't know they would. But they saw you had a need and they did it. Listen, that's what we need in the church. we got to be looking out and just assume whoever you're talking to has a need because they do. I asked one time, I said, I want us to be friendly to people. And if you ever see me mess up, tell me. And not long after I said that, a lady had to come to me and she said, Pastor, you told us, I didn't want to tell you this, but you told us to, so I'm going to do it. I said, yeah, go ahead. And they had a relative with them, and I sat by him on the pew the entire day and never said a word to him. She said, I'm not accusing you, I'm not mad, I'm not upset. You said to tell you, and I'm telling you. I said, thank you for telling me. I've heard testimonies from people who've come. We we do our best, we try. But they come to our church, and nobody says anything to them. And I know the reason, there's twofold reason. One, you're scared you're going to embarrass yourself. Let me take away that fear. You will embarrass yourself. Just be prepared. (laughs) Who cares? Big deal. It doesn't matter in eternity. Remember, in a hundred years, nobody will remember. And right now, there's a billion Chinese people that don't even care. So just go ahead and embarrass yourself. If you embarrass yourself as much as I did, you get over it. I promise you will. But the second reason is we think we're friendly because we talk to our friends every week. I did, I've got this illustration, but I'd be quit preaching and going to meddling. But I'll do it as generally as I can so I don't offend anybody Particularly. But have you ever been in the store where two friends meet up in the aisle? With a basket? And ten kids? And twenty minutes later they're still standing there? It's like, do you not have a phone? Can you not go outside? Can you not meet at each other's house? Why do you got to do this in the aisle right here where I got to get to? You know, now of course I'm exaggerating. You just say, excuse me, can I get through? And they always go, "Oh, oh yeah, sorry. And they move. But that happens at church. We see our friend, we get with our friend and we're talking and a hurting person comes by and we don't see them. Friend, you got at least six other days. Call each other, go to each other's house, do whatever, get together. When you're here, put on your I don't know you radar and go up to somebody. So let me get in some applications here. Understand we're a team, not a group of individuals. As you know, I love... Sports to a degree, and I love one team in particular. But I know enough about sports. I'm not good at them. I don't understand them all totally. I'm not the best. I just enjoy it. But I know this on a football team, you got 11 guys per side, and if 11 guys went out there for their own glory, that team will always lose. Five guys on a basketball team, and if they go out and each one wants the ball and wants to shoot the ball every time, they will lose. Even if you got the best, the highest score ever recorded by an individual in a basketball game it was 100 points by Wilt Chamberlain and his team lost the game. Just to put it in perspective. You got nine guys on a baseball diamond and if each guy is only playing for himself, hey, I caught the ball, wasn't that cool? See how I caught that ball? That was a great catch. While the other guys are still running the bases and scoring, you're going to lose. And if a church is made up of however many people are in the church, of that many individuals, we will Lose the battle. We've got to minister to each other before we can minister to the world. Now, that's not an either or, that's a both and. But we got to do that. You say, well, how do I do that? It's called get ready. This is a new concept for you. And so I may have to take more time to explain it. Sunday school. We already got the structure, we got the bones. Get in a class that you know somebody. I, I rarely have had someone call aggravated. I was sick. Nobody said anything. What Sunday school class you go to? Well, I don't really go to Sunday school. Yeah, well, guess what? <laughs> There's some people not sitting out here, and I don't know who they are because I just see a big crowd out here. And I won't even notice. Somebody should notice maybe. But if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job, right? It's your job. And if we would get together in Sunday school and care for each other, Wow, what a difference that would make, right? You say, how do you do that? Well, there are plans you can use, but I'm just saying, we're not a group of individuals. We're a team. And I've had to stand alone at times in my life, but it is sure good. Because I was always the wimpy little guy. I mean, when I graduated high school, I was 5'9", 120 pounds, soaking wet. (laughs) But my... Best friend played middle linebacker. <laughs> my other good friend was, you know. So I hung out with those guys because <laughs> we were a team. I didn't have to be an individual. Secondly, commit to having a meal once a month with somebody you don't know at Calvary. Just walk up to somebody you don't know. Say, hi, my name's so-and-so. I don't know who you are. Are you a member here? Are you a visitor here? I'd like to invite you over to my house to eat or let's go out to such and a restaurant and eat. I don't care if it's Burger King. Just make yourself do it. And then thirdly, seek an accountability partner that can encourage you and that you can encourage. Somebody can ask you the tough questions so that you can respond. you got to be honest. Accountability only works when you're honest and you really try to do that. Um, that, It's a slippery slope. you got to be careful. But find somebody that that can be an accountability partner where they will check on you and you will check on them and You get together, or whether on phone or text or email or whatever. we got so many ways to communicate now. I can pick up my phone anytime I want and call my children in in the Middle East and in Central America and talk to them. Certainly, we can do that across town, can't we? And so, I just want to encourage you with some ways that we can start encouraging one another. Because, friend, we're marching into a fight. We're going to try to get the gospel in every house in Augusta County. You think the devil don't know that? Look out. Two weeks after we do that, the ma- mischief and magic, both things condemned by the Bible, is coming to Stanton. You don't think the devil's going to put a push on that? We better be prayed up, standing shoulder to shoulder, going against the, the, the enemy we cannot see, because the weapons of our warfare are not physical but spiritual. They're not carnal, they're spiritual. And we've got to stand together in prayer against one enemy and one enemy alone is Satan. People are not our enemy. The devil's our enemy. Amen? And we need to do that. Let's pray. Father, we need each other and we need you. Lord, in your prayer, you pray that we would be one.